Under construction. Uh, Mr. Clint, would you be so kind as to pull up the next one? Uh, this building is called La Sagrada Familia. And it, it's not being renovated. It's never been finished. Uh, the building started in 1880. This is in Barcelona. And the architect, whose name is Antoni Gaudi, um, used to sleep at the site and breathe in the dust and watch the light change uh, because he was kind of a crazy person. And he died in 1926, uh, and the building was nowhere near finished. He left behind apprentices and architectural drawings, and the work has continued and continues and is actually nowhere close to being finished. And you would think that that would bother an architect, right? But when people would ask Antonio Gaudi about this, he would say, well, my client is not in a hurry. God is not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry with you. And he's not in a hurry with me. And he's not in a hurry with the church, which is surprising, because it's been under construction for quite some time now. And God has left some pretty decent architectural drawings on the sorts of lives that we should live and how to build. And we know that we want to build well, but God seems so very confident in part because we're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so that's why he's not in a rush with your story and why he's not in a rush with Jonah's story. And it's a story we've been reading for the last few weeks. And all along the way, he just keeps getting second chances. It's amazing when you think of it. And as we come to the end of the story, there's sort of this implied thing that God seems to be saying about Jonah. Be patient with him. I'm not finished with him yet. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I want you to turn to your neighbor really quickly and say this with me. Uh, be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. <laughs> And those of you who are married and are talking to your spouses, that's a particularly useful saying. You might need to say that on a regular basis. And those of you with roommates where it's a little contentious, that's a really useful thing to say. Be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. Uh, turn with me to the book of Jonah. We're going to be in chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. And we're going to start at verse 3. If you've got a Bible or a phone, it's a good time to open it up. And we're going to cover a little of the ground we covered last week. Jonah 4, starting at verse 3. This is our last sermon in our series, In Spite of Myself. Jonah 4, 3. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. <laughs> then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. That's it? Where is the rest of the story? Don't you feel a little bit cheated? It ends with a question. You can't just stop telling a story and call that an ending. And many animals also. What's Jonah going to say? What's God going to do? What's going to happen to the people of Nineveh? This story is unfinished. And that might be why a lot of people prefer the children's Bible version of the book of Jonah, because everything just gets cleanly wrapped up, and there's a bow tied on all the sort of loose ends in the story. But the actual book of Jonah and the actual God of Jonah is a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, years ago, there was a Bible study at Redeemer Church in Manhattan, and kind of a famous literary art critic came because she was, well, she loves beauty, and she also wasn't sure why she didn't believe in God. So she came, she started going to a Bible study, and it was on the book of Jonah. And after a few weeks, she said, you know, I'm really surprised. I thought that the, the God of the Bible was this sort of flat character. And a flat character in literature is someone that doesn't get rounded out. You don't hear very much about their story. You don't know much about their personality. They're very predictable. They, they kinda, they're just sort of placeholders. She said, that, that's not how the God of the Bible is at all. He's this complicated, real character in the story. You don't always know exactly what he's going to do. Which is good to know, because you and I are pretty complicated characters in our own stories. And I don't know about you, but my story isn't finished yet. The chapters are still being written. And I don't know how many more chapters I get to write. And I, you probably don't know how many more chapters are left in your story. And we know that many people get to the ends of their lives, and they haven't really thought about the kind of life they're going to live, and they're suddenly surprised that death is coming for all of us. But we know, those of us who believe in Jesus, that actually we want to live lives intentionally and well. We want to get closer to the God that we follow and not just be reactive as we go through our lives. And it's nice to know that God isn't finished with Jonah, that Jonah's story is clearly not over, that more could be written. We actually hear more about Jonah elsewhere in the Bible. And so it's clear that the author of the book of Jonah is not nearly as interested in history and what happens to the people of Nineveh and what exactly happens to Jonah as he is in theology. Who is God? And who are we in light of who God is? And you and I, we read the story, we come to the end, and Jonah does not look great. It's fun to laugh at Jonah, because this guy is ridiculous and crazy and all kinds of angry. But it might be worth remembering that Jonah's a real person, and that his story finds its way into the Bible the same way that your story and my story could have found their way into the Bible. The book of Acts makes it pretty clear that you and I are writing the next chapters of the church that our lives don't actually make it into this book, but nonetheless, that people are going to look at our lives and see how we interact with God and see how God moves in our lives. And they're going to learn a lot about who God is and what to do or what not to do based on how we live our lives. So imagine if your story was in the Bible or just a piece of it, ages 14 to 19 of your life, or maybe just the last three months in the next six months, or maybe ages 25 to 37, or... 42 to 75. Some of those chapters haven't been written yet. You don't really know what's going to happen next. I wonder if you would like all of those years included, or maybe if we, if we could just skip my 20s. That was not my best. See, if we could just jump from, I was really great at 17, and then I did well at 30. And somewhere in there, it was, you know what, if we could just kind of gloss over that section of my story. And actually, if we could choose some of the best seasons of our life, I still think we'd be uncomfortable if people could actually see how we were with God behind the scenes. 
Because Jonah has done some incredible things in this book. Even if you pick the season of your life where you were the most sold out for God and ministry and mission, where your prayer life was deep, where you were invested in some local church, where you were really just on fire for what the Lord was doing. I wonder if we could see what happened on Saturday nights or what your prayer life really looked like. Because Jonah has done some amazing things in this book. This may be some of the most amazing stuff that God has done in his life. And he's not reacting very well behind the scenes. And I think it's nice to know, actually, that God isn't finished with Jonah because it's nice to know that God isn't finished with me. And there have been seasons in my life where I felt like I was doing really well and I got tempted to sort of coast, sort of just accept that, like, this, was, this is about as good as it's going to get. And then years later, things changed so dramatically that I looked back on that season and, and was just really glad that wasn't the end of my story. You might be in a season like that. And it, it's my hope, and I think God's hope, that we grow beyond where we are right now, no matter how good it is. But more likely than not, you're here today and you're thinking, actually, my story hasn't been great lately, and I could really use like a new year or a new season. I really don't like what's been happening lately, and I don't like, I kind of thought that things would have gotten to a different place in my life, and certain things would have worked themselves out by now that haven't worked themselves out by now in my family or in my career or with sort of some dreams that I have, and I've been screwing up a lot lately, and things haven't been looking so good lately, and I'm sort of, I'm embarrassed by kind of who I've been recently. It's nice to know that God isn't finished with you, and God isn't finished with me. Be patient with Jonah. God isn't finished with him yet. Jonah, however, is not particularly patient with himself. Uh, you probably noticed that as we were reading it. He keeps talking about dying. He's sort of hoping that God just ends it like I'm done, right? I quit. It would be better for me to die than to live over and over and over again. Jonah keeps saying this. And if you've ever, well, dealt with a period of serious depression or suicide in your life, guilty, uh, it's nice to know there are people in the Bible like that. Uh, that our story is not unique, that actually that God can use people, even like me, even like you, in the midst of our brokenness and despair. But even if you've never been to quite that place in your life, it's also nice to know that sometimes when you just feel like giving up and quitting, maybe not on life in general, but on a pr like I'm done with my brother. I'm just done. Like I quit. This is over. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done with love. I'm done with dating and, and guys or girls. Like I'm just no more. Like I'm just, this is the life I'm going to live and I'm good. And I'm done dreaming. I'm done imagining a better future for myself. I'm done with school. I just don't want to do school anymore. I'm done with this friend of mine. He just, he's never going to get it together. It's driving me nuts. If you've ever felt just like quitting and giving up, Jonah is the book for you. Because no matter how many times we are tempted to give up, God seems fairly confident that he could do something greater and better in our lives. Jonah keeps crying out to God, it would be better for me if you just ended my life. And God goes, no. And Jonah says, well, but, but like you killed the bush, you know. And God says, yeah, I'm, I'm more worried about you than a bush. I'm more about the people of Nineveh than a bush. I'm not finished with them, and I'm not finished with you. Be patient with yourself. God isn't finished with you yet. I think a lot of the time when it comes to following Jesus, we get pretty impatient, especially as we read the Bible and we look at our lives and we go, man, I, really, I should have kind of been more mature by now. I should, have, I should be like a deeper person, but I should be hearing from God in some really miraculous ways. I should be able to walk on water at this point in my story. I've been following Jesus at least as long as Peter. I should have figured this out by now. I should be doing some incredible things, and, and I really shouldn't be snapping at my wife. We've been married for a long time, and I really shouldn't be treating my children this way, and I really shouldn't be interacting with people this way, and I did get flipped off an awful lot in traffic yesterday, and it would be good, you know? It would be good if, something, if God would do something in me, and there's, sometimes we look at ourselves and our lives and 
it just it isn't quite the way that, that we think it should be, and we imagine that God looks at us kind of the same way. And it's one of the reasons that people sometimes struggle coming to church, because we feel bad about ourselves, and we imagine that God's going to make us feel worse. That's actually not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is very simply this. Yes, you're an absolute mess. God loves you. He can do great things with you in your absolute mess. It's the whole reason Jesus came. There was a, a monk in the 7th century, a guy named St. John of Carpathos. In the 7th century, they just called him John. But now he's St. John of Carpathos. And he was this remarkable man who really loved the Lord. He spent a lot of time praying and fasting the way monks do. And he was so good at it that something about him really seemed to change. Something about his character seemed to just become more like Jesus. So much so that other monks, other people who were spending their whole lives dedicated to following Jesus, were like, man, you figured something out that I would really like. Like, I would like to learn from you. And so he'd get letters from all over the ancient world. And they would say things like, you know, I just... Lately, I don't know, it's like I have a plan for my life, and when it doesn't go my way, I just, I lose it. And it just drives me, it's so hard for me to recover. And I know I should trust God, but I'm having so much trouble trusting God. And I really do have a problem with anger, and I just don't really like the way I, I deal with disappointment or frustration. And I just, could you, could you help me? And John would write these long letters. And they would say things like, yeah, you're probably exactly as messy as you think, if not worse. Um, and one of the real issues you've got is you keep thinking about how your life would be better if it was somebody else's life, which is why you're writing me the letter, and that's part of the problem. Uh, you've got an issue with envy, and you probably have a real issue with anger, and yeah, you're probably not great when it comes to trusting God, and your prayer life doesn't look good, and you might be losing an awful lot of battles with demons. But it's a more serious thing, I was paraphrasing up until now, but this is a quote, it's a more serious thing to lose hope than to sin. This blew my mind this week. More serious thing to lose hope than to sin. Not because sin is not a serious thing. Sin is an incredibly serious thing. John takes it seriously. So do I. You've heard me say this many, many times. If there is sin in your life and you are ignoring it, if you think that God doesn't care what you do with your sex life or God doesn't care what you're doing behind the scenes or, or that you, know, you can get away with this at work or the way you're treating people that no one really sees, it's okay. God's not that worried about it. God's absolutely worried about it. There are consequences for sin. But most of the time, we know that sin matters. That's one of the reasons we don't really like ourselves. We feel that sin is a very serious thing. It's a more serious thing, he says, to lose hope than to sin. And this isn't a hope that's some abstract idea, like, you know, believe that good things will happen and they will. Christianity, we're quite sure that that's not true. This isn't some abstract idea like believe in yourself, really. If you will, if you believe in yourself that life is worth living, then it'll be more worth living. We would say, absolutely, that's not true. Believing in yourself will just make you all the more aware that sin is a very serious thing. The hope that he's talking about is the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. Solid, tangible, and real. That we have placed our lives in the hands of Jesus, and we trust, in the words of Paul, that he who has begun this good work in us is able to bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. That God is still at work in you, still at work in me. John, when he makes this argument, will say, uh, the, there's two people after the crucifixion. There's Judas, right, who betrays Jesus, and suddenly it just hits him what he's done. And he despairs and he hangs himself. And there's Peter, who also betrays Jesus, and after the crucifixion does not get broken by despair. And so he lives long enough to find out that Jesus still loves him. He gets to see the resurrected Lord Jesus and hear words of grace from his mouth. And see that God isn't finished with him, actually. That God has a mission and a plan and a purpose for him yet. 
Be patient with yourself. God isn't finished with you yet. God can still use someone like you. I am proof of that. God is using me. And that is absolutely amazing. Amazing to me that God could use someone like me in my brokenness and with my story. Be patient with yourself. God isn't finished with you yet. Jonah has given up. And we see him sitting at the edge of the city. We've left him sort of on a hill overlooking Nineveh, his worst enemies, staring at them. <laughs> rooting for this very strange miracle that God would stop being gracious. Rooting, waiting for the 40 days in the hopes that maybe these people would screw up and that hell would just open up and swallow them all down. This is what Jonah is, is rooting for, that God would be that kind of God. And when it doesn't happen, he's just outraged. And he goes walking far, far away from God. That's verse 5. Uh, Jonah communicates with God mostly with body language in the story. That you and I, we think that the only time we're talking to God is in prayer. No. God sees how we live our lives. God sees the kind of people that we are, where we spend our money, where we spend our attention, where we spend our energy and our effort. We communicate with body language, with other people and with God. And God sees this, and yet God is still gracious in the life of Jonah. He goes walking east of the city, builds himself this weird little house so he can stare at these people in judgment for 40 days. And God grows this strange little plant over him to shade him. And this is verse 6. And we don't know what kind of plant this is, so maybe God literally just creates this miraculous thing out of nothing. Just to shade Jonah, only to be gracious. And in verse 6, what it says is uh, that he, he does this to shade Jonah to save him from his discomfort. And literally in Hebrew, there's a kind of a play on words between shade and save. And so the shade is really for Jonah's salvation. And that word discomfort is really from his evil or from his disaster. That God is trying to save Jonah from disaster. In verse 6, what we get is something explicit that has been implicit all the way through the story. That God is trying to save Jonah. That Jonah, who you think is the missionary, is actually the mission field. And that the creator of the universe has been sending storms and pagans and fish and enemies and a plant and then a worm and then the wind and the sun that the God of the universe is doing everything in his power to bring Jonah to his knees literally and figuratively so he will realize his need for grace and mercy the prophet is in desperate need of prophecy the self-appointed judge is in desperate need of mercy and the messenger really could use a word from the Lord right now that you and I who God uses in our lives. Sometimes we think we have to be these perfect, remarkable people for God to use us. God uses us in the midst of our sin and failure and brokenness. And sometimes it's in the using that God actually does some really great things in our life. That God, along the way of our mission, manages to do a little work in and through us. And there's this thing in the history of the church that has kind of confused folks theologically for a long time. And what do we do with the fact that Jesus died for you and saved you? And the instant you turned to Jesus, you repented, he just changed your life right then and there. You were set free completely from sin. What do we do with the fact that that happened to you, those of you who've turned to Jesus? And then the next day you were kind of a jerk to your mom. And then the day after that you sort of like cheated on your taxes by not reporting your tips. And you, like, what do we do with the fact that like Jesus has saved me and yet I, I still feel like this person who really needs a lot of work? And so the theologians in the church, the reformers in particular, Calvin and Luther, they said, well, the, the first thing when God saves us, we call that justification. You've been justified, those of you who've turned to Jesus. And the, the word, a good way to think of it, uh, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. But you still got a lot of bad habits, because you've been a sinner for a long time. And your body is used to doing some things that aren't good for you, and your brain is used to doing some things that aren't good for you, and your heart's doing 
doing some things that really aren't good for you, and you have a way of reacting to people that's really not good for you, and your soul really could use some sort of training and holiness and righteousness. We call that sanctification. It's a different word. The long, slow, steady process where God restores the image of God in us, renews the image of God in us. Day in and day out, by the power of His Spirit. Not because we're doing this to earn something that God has given us, but because we want to live deeper into what God's given us. We want to really experience the joy of this justification through sanctification. We want to live that out. Be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. Turn to your neighbor really quickly and say it again. Be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. It's incredibly good news that God isn't finished with you and God isn't finished with me yet. That God is still at work in and through us. Even the most wretched failures of us. There's a great Old Testament scholar, a woman named Elizabeth Actemeyer. She says this, We can so immerse ourselves in our irreligious society, or in a godless social circle, or in our own affairs or interests, that the name of God is never spoken, except in profanity. And the works of God are never recalled. We can absent ourselves from all worship, all faith communities, all religious learning, all attempts to live by faith's ethic and become totally secular, banishing God from our thought, our deed, our devotion, our total view of the world. We can forget about God and live in Tarshish or in Nineveh or just a little bit east. And God, of course, is not absent from such a culture. God who sustains each life and the order of the natural realm is never absent. God wants life and good, not only for all of us disobedient Jonas, but for the Ninevehs of the world, for the Judases and Hitlers and Pol Pots and Stalins, the Maos and the Moons, and every terrorist. God wants life for those who hung his son on a cross and for the thieves who died beside him. God wants good for the most grievous sinner and for the most ignorant, good for children and cattle, for all the creatures on the face of this earth. It is impossible to understand the height and breadth and depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That God looks at Jonah, not the way I look at Jonah, with, good Lord, dude, what's your deal? But as someone he loves dearly and deeply. And Jonah, meanwhile, is sitting under the shade of this tree, and God takes grace away from him and sends this little worm to kill it. Because the tactic isn't working. And so 24 hours later, God decides it's, it's time to stop coddling Jonah. And he doesn't just take away the plant. He sends this terrible wind, uh, which in North Africa and the Middle East, they call this the, a Sirocco. Uh, Hurricane-level winds, so 100, 120 miles an hour winds that are flying over sand, driving it like needles into your body. Nomads now will say it's the kind of storm that makes you wish you were dead. When you're in it, you just, it's miserable. Jonah's in the middle of this horrible, terrible dust storm, and it says in Hebrew that God uses the sun to smack him over the head. And Jonah's in the middle of this dust storm crying out to God, I wish I was dead. And God is saying, you are learning the wrong lesson from the death of the bush. And he goes, I'm angry enough to die. And you think, man, how are you doubling down right now? This is, this is really a remarkable thing. And there's something about Jonah that's really interesting, that he seems to know God so well and not know God. Right? He has this extremely close relationship with God that he feels like he can talk like this to God and that God's going to listen and that God does these miraculous things in his life and God moves in power through him. And yet at the same time, Jonah just clearly needs so much work. God's really got to do some work in Jonah's life. And he's speaking to Jonah, he's saying, look, do you not see how patient I'm being with you? Do you not? Of course I'm patient with the people of Nineveh. You're worried about a bush. You don't think I'd be worried about a city with 120,000 people? And yes, they don't know their right hand from their left, which is an incredibly gracious way to talk about the Assyrian Empire. We've talked about them. These are like a nation of horrible murderers. 
And God just talks about them like they're idiots, and they just don't know me. Which gives us hope for somebody like Jonah, the 120,000 and first person, who doesn't seem to know his right hand from his left. Even if he acts like a wild beast at the moment, that God loves even people like Jonah. And so then there's this question mark at the end of the book. How will Jonah respond? How will we respond to this story? And hopefully it's by having patience, not just with ourselves, but with people like the people of Nineveh and people like Jonah, that we'd realize with the woman at the grocery store who's on her phone for 10 minutes and being kind of disrespectful to the person by the counter and ignoring her own children, that maybe we're only seeing a slice of her story, that we should be patient with her. God hasn't finished with her yet. That when you're dealing with your spouse and you see them being defensive and obnoxious and conveniently are forgetting that you were moments ago defensive and obnoxious, that you should be patient with them. That God hasn't finished with them yet. That when you're dealing with people at work who you have to deal with day in and day out, and they operate like a character from the office, and you just can't handle how obnoxious this person is. And somewhere in the middle of it, you realize, you know, it's possible I'm just getting a slice of their story, that I should be patient with them, that God hasn't finished with them yet. Whether this is a person in your family who you love deeply, or your own marriage, or some relationship you have that's not a marriage, but is just as important to you, be patient with it. God might not be finished with it yet, but God is actually constantly working in and through and around us. And that there are even people that we love dearly and deeply who are hoping they'll come to know Jesus. There might be some family member in your life who you just keep praying for, or someone you know who just, it, it's painful for you that they don't seem to know the Lord, they can't seem to grow up, or they can't seem to mature, or they can't seem to get out of adolescence, or, or whatever it is. Maybe it's just some part of the world that's just heartbreaking for you, and you're not quite sure what's going on, but you know God wants you to get involved. Be patient. God hasn't finished yet. There's a Renaissance artist named Michelangelo uh, who's known for the Sistine Chapel, but also some pretty amazing sculptures that he did. Not the Ninja Turtle. <laughs> also, he liked pizza, but not the Ninja Turtle. Michelangelo, the Italian artist, uh, was known for his, his work in sculpture, and he did some really remarkable things in sculpture. The David, which people know, but... There were even things along the way that he didn't finish that still looked kind of beautiful and amazing. And the reason for that, Michelangelo would say, is whenever he came to a piece of marble, it's not so much that he was trying to carve the marble into something, it's that he would see something in the marble that's trapped, and he's trying to set it free. So when it came to David, he was just carving, he was cutting off everything that wasn't the David. And even at the end, he'd say, there was, you, you never really finished, there's always more that you could do. And so there's uh, these works of Michelangelo that are called the captives. Um, and this is one of them. It's kind of dark for some reason, so it's a little tough to see. But they call this uh, Atlas, which isn't what Michelangelo called it. It's something he was working on that um, never really got finished. And it doesn't really look like he's carving something out of the rock as much as he's trying to set someone free from the rock, someone who's trapped by rubble and who just needs the gracious hand of a sculptor, some outside hand to, to keep chipping away and keep setting him free. And even with uh, better works, things that you, you might call finished, the, the Pieta, um, which this is Michelangelo's most famous statue, is the only one he ever signed his name to. The only one. Not even David. This is the only one he ever signed his name to. He wrote Michelangelo, Facie Abat, Anno 1499. It's on the back of the statue. And people would say this is the most perfect thing that Michelangelo ever made. And that word, Fachi Abad, is not his last name. It's a word that is often mistranslated in art textbooks. Uh, they say he finished this in 1499. And that's not what the word means. In, in Latin, it's, it's a past continuous. It, it really means Michelangelo was working on this. 
1499. I'm not, I'm not finished yet. It was the signature he put on his most famous work of art. I fell in love with that word this week, Fachiabad. I want it tattooed on myself somewhere as a reminder that God is still working on me. Because sometimes you come in contact with people who follow Jesus and you're like, man, there is like nothing left to do. That thing is amazing. And those people who really follow Jesus would say, you know what? God's still working on me. Be patient with me. God is not yet finished with me. And there are plenty of times in life where we're walking out in the world and we see people who really sort of seem trapped in rubble, just sort of locked in stone. And we know that what they're really crying out for is the gracious hand of the master who will slowly and steadily keep chipping away at them the way he's chipping away at me. Be patient with me. Be patient with them. God's not finished with me yet. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the book of Jonah.